I have to tell you that I have, I think, tonight just a little glimpse, personally, of what heaven will be like. It's, it's such a joy to see so many people who I have known and loved through the years. And really to be in a place with a whole lot of folks who have helped me to become what I am. And uh, I feel like a lot of you have had a part in not only raising me, but in helping me to love the Lord and in helping me to better appreciate preaching His Word. And so I thank you, and I'm thankful for the opportunity and the privilege that we have to be together. It's a blessing to be able to close this day by singing songs of praise to God and by being able to open up our Bibles and seeking to find God's answers to our problems in this life. With that in mind, if there are things that you hear tonight, questions perhaps that you might have, we don't want you to leave with those questions on your mind. We want to sit down together and open up our Bibles and find what God's plan for us might be. Our desire more than anything else is to do the will of God. And so we want to see what God's Word says, and we want to follow it. We started yesterday morning by looking at what we're calling the hallmarks of the church. And for those of you that are not here, I want to give a brief explanation of what I mean. The term hallmark has reference to a mark of authenticity. You think of a greeting card, but the word really has bearing on precious metals. That terminology was first used in the 1700s in England. There was a counting house, Goldsmith's Hall, where gold and silver and platinum would pass through, and those metals were examined. And if they were found to be genuine, they received a stamp, a mark. And that mark came to be known as a hall mark. Now with that being said, I asked yesterday morning, if you had a friend who asked you about the church, how would you describe it? I have a tendency to think that you would consider some of the various characteristics of the church. And we might call some of those characteristics hallmarks. They're the things that help us to identify the body of Christ that we read about in the New Testament. And so we started by looking at some of the ways the church is described in Scripture. There are a variety of metaphors that are used. Paul told Timothy, for example, that the church is the house of God. We noted that the church is also the flock of God. And as such, we have an obligation to submit completely to God's will. The church is the spokesman for God, and so our task is to proclaim the gospel to those around us. The church is the family of God, and as God's family, we hurt when our brethren hurt. We rejoice when they rejoice. The church is the body of Christ, and so all of us have an obligation to do what we can to build up the cause, and the church is the bride of Christ. We have the obligation to be pure. We looked at conduct. What is the church supposed to do? In that letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy describes to us the way that the church is to conduct itself in a manner that honors God. What a joy it is to serve our God. 
What a joy it is to think about our identity, our conduct, and then last evening, the unity that we can enjoy as a body. Tonight we're going to consider another one of those characteristics. The characteristic of faith. Now, I have to be very clear about this as we begin. If there is a concept that is more misconstrued in the religious world today than faith, I'm not sure what it is. There are a lot of folks who, if you ask them, must we have faith, who will respond without any hesitation at all, yes, we must have faith. But generally speaking, when that term faith is used by many people in the religious world today, they merely have in mind the idea of granting mental assent to some fact. And so as long as I say I believe a certain fact, I can say, as far as our world is concerned, that I have faith. Let me suggest to you tonight that that's not the concept of biblical And so what I want to do for the next few minutes is to go through what the Bible says about faith. We're going to do that by beginning to define our term. We're then going to look at an example in Scripture where faith is on display. And then we'll talk about why faith is demanded of us as children. And I think by the time we get to that point, you'll see how faith is a necessary hallmark of the church. So... First and foremost, what is faith? Many of you are members of the Church of Christ, the church that belongs to Jesus. And so if someone asked you to give a biblical definition of faith, I'm rather certain what you might say. I think at least some of you would go to Hebrews chapter 11. Am I right about that? Now, if you were here yesterday, you remember, this means yes. Those of you from West Florida certainly ought to remember that. Would you go to Hebrews chapter 11 to talk about what faith is? I would. So that chapter begins, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And so if we're going to try to give a definition of biblical faith, perhaps we would start with Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 and we'd say, all right, what is faith? Well, faith is the substance of of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. And sometimes when we talk about that term, we focus particularly on the descriptive words substance and evidence. Now the word substance has reference to something that we can actually put our hands on. Something that we can tangibly feel. Something that can be measured by our senses. And so our sight might be used to verify a substance and our hearing, or our taste, or our touch, or our smell. But I hope you notice the passage does not say faith is a substance. Do you see that? It says instead it is the substance of things hoped for. Now here's what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He is using something that you understand in physical terms. The idea of your capacity to handle a substance to understand whether something is real or whether it is not real, and he is applying that to something that is not within the physical realm that you and I dwell in. Faith is the substance, but not just a substance, it's the substance of things hoped for, and it is the evidence, and that's another word that we use to prove things, isn't it? Someone is in a court of law, and they're being tried for 
a particular crime, the attorney who is bringing the charge against that individual will bring forth the evidence. And they'll have various things that that individual has done, and they'll try to have witnesses who will testify to the fact of the evidence. And when the witnesses testify to the fact of the evidence, those things will be considered, and then the case will be determined. But our passage doesn't say faith is evidence. It says it's the evidence of things not yet seen. So what the writer of Hebrews does is very interesting to me. He uses two words that we always attach to physical proof. And he applies those things to things that are hoped for and things that are not yet seen. Now, if you're familiar with Hebrews chapter 11, you know that that passage goes on to tell us of the absolute necessity of faith, right? Verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. It is not possible for us to please God without faith. Whatever this faith is, this substance of things hoped for, this evidence of things not seen, you can't please God without it. Make no mistake about that. But what I'm thankful for is that Hebrews chapter 11 does not just give us a definition of faith, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And it does not just impress upon us the necessity of possessing that sort of faith, whatever that means. It also gives us examples of what that faith looks like. And so I want to take just a second to consider two or three of those. Open your Bibles with me as we're thinking about the definition of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. The first example that I want you to consider is a very familiar one to you. I want you to look at verse 7. The text says, by faith. Now let's stop for just a second and note what's going on in the passage. Our author has defined what he means by faith using terms that we understand in a physical sense with regard to our knowledge. But he's told us this is not just about the physical, it's about the things that are hoped for, it's about the things that are not yet seen, and you've got to have this if you're going to please God. And so what he's going to go on and do is to show us individuals who had this sort of faith. So whatever they had that caused them to act as they did is what we need to have if we wish to please God. So he says, by faith, Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. Now stop for just a moment and remember the story of Noah. You recall that in Genesis the 6th chapter, when God examined the world, he found that the thoughts of men's hearts were only evil continually. That's a very degrading statement, isn't it? People didn't think about good things. They thought only about evil things. And when God examined the world, he found that men's thoughts were only evil continually. But there was one individual who found grace in the eyes of the Lord, a man named Noah. And you recall that God gave Noah very specific instructions and he told him to make for himself an ark of gopher wood. And he described the dimensions and he described the way that Noah was supposed to act. Now with that in mind, go back to verse 7. By faith, Noah, 
being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear and prepared an ark for the saving of his household. That raises a question, I think, an important one. Why did Noah build the ark? Why did Noah build the ark? Our children can answer that. They'll say, Noah built the ark because God told him to. You see, Noah didn't wake up one morning and look around the world that he lived in and say, you know what? I think because of the atmospheric conditions, I think because of the way that I feel, I think because of the things that I can observe in the sky, that it's going to do something different than it's ever done. I think it's going to rain, whatever that means. And I think if I'm going to be prepared for the rain that's about to come, that I'm prepared for, I, I think I'm going to have to do something that's drastic. I think I'm going to have to build an ark. You say, that's ludicrous. That's not what happened. You're right. Noah didn't decide to build the ark because he observed something in the earth that made him think that it was going to flood the world and that everything that he saw was going to be destroyed. Noah decided to build the ark because God told him to. And when Hebrews chapter 11 uses the language that it uses, it says that Noah built the ark, watch this now, by faith. Do you see that? It's not a hunch. It's not merely an idea. Noah simply acted upon what God told him to do. Now that's not the only example from Hebrews chapter 11 that shows us the same idea. If you will, let's move on a little further in the chapter and let's consider verse 17. In verse 17 we are introduced to the character Abraham. And the Bible says in verse 17, by faith... There's our word again. Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Now let's stop for just a second and remember the history. When Abraham was 75 years old, God came to him and he told him, you are going to have a son. He is the son of promise and it's through your seed that I will bless all of the earth. And several years went by and that son had not come and God was still faithful in his promise and yet Abraham was questioning and he went to God and he said, I haven't had this son that you promised me. And the closest thing that I have to a son is Eleazar of Damascus, who is a servant in my household. Is he going to be the one? And God said, he's not going to be the one. You're going to have a son. Your descendants are going to be as great as the sands of the earth, the stars in the sky. Abraham, I'm going to bless the world through you. And the Bible says Abraham believed God. God counted it unto him as righteousness. When that son was a little older, Abraham took him, Genesis chapter 22, up on the mountain and he offered him as a sacrifice to God. You remember the story, don't you? Now I want to ask you for just a second to think. Why did Abraham decide to take Isaac and when Genesis chapter 22 begins, it calls him your only son, the son whom you love. 
Why did Abraham decide to take his son Isaac, his only son, the son whom he loved, and offer him as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah? He did not do that because he woke up one morning and he thought to himself, you know, I think it would be a pretty good idea as a way to honor God to offer him the son that he gave to me. That's not what happened. Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice because God told him to. Abraham, you take your son, your only son, the son of your love, and you offer him as a sacrifice. And the Bible says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. One other example from Hebrews 11 should suffice. Look at verse 30. In verse 30, the text says, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. Now, you likely remember the story that led up to the defeat of Jericho. The Israelites had crossed over the river Jordan. They had come from the east bank across the west, and Jericho was the first walled city to which they came. And God gave Joshua, who was the commander, very specific instructions. You march around the city walls with your troops one time a day for six days and seven times upon the seventh day, and you shout a great shout and you blow the trumpets and the walls will fall down. Now put yourself in the shoes of a military commander. If you were trying to devise a battle plan, I can assure you that you would not simply wake up one morning and say, I've got it. What we're going to do, instead of trying to siege the city or attack the city or break through the walls of the city, we're going to march around this city one time a day for six days. We're going to let them jeer at us. We're going to let them shoot their arrows at us. We're going to let them mock us. And on the seventh day, we're going to do it seven times. And then we're going to shout a great shout and we're going to blow our trumpets. And I know that the walls will fall down. You say, of course he didn't do that. So why did the people march around the city? Why did they shout a great shout? Why did they blow their trumpets? You know the answer. Joshua chapter 6. Because God told them to. And so, Noah built the ark because God told him to. And Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice because God told him to. And the walls of Jericho came tumbling down because the Israelites, under the leadership of Joshua, did what God told them to. And all of those things, according to Hebrews chapter 11, occurred by faith. Now, how does that help us with our definition? With that in mind, I want you to look at Romans chapter 10. There is a very familiar passage to you in Romans the 10th chapter that we quote when we describe the necessity of hearing the Word of God. Romans chapter 10 and verse 17. The text says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Now let me tell you what faith involves. And here's our definition. Faith is a willingness to do what God says do. That's biblical faith. 
Why did Noah build the ark? Because, very simply, God spoke. You build yourself an ark out of gopher wood. And Noah heard God speak. And Noah did what God said do. Why did Abraham offer Isaac as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah? Because God said, you take your son, your only son, the son of your love, and you offer him as a sacrifice. And Abraham heard what God said, and Abraham did what God said. Why did the walls of Jericho fall down after they were encircled? Because God spoke to Joshua and he said, you do this. And Joshua heard what God said, and the Israelites did what God said. And because of that, the walls came tumbling down. God spoke Man heard, man did. Biblical faith is not merely saying, sure, I would agree to that. Biblical faith is taking God and His Word to the point that I'm willing to do what He says to do. And so we have to start with a definition. Biblical faith isn't just granting assent to a fact. It is God speaking and man hearing and man doing. And that's the way that Scripture defines Biblical faith. Now, with that being said, we're going to go to a passage where I think this entire concept is put on display. But perhaps it's not necessarily a passage that you have considered in this light before. So, if you will, open your Bibles with me to Matthew, the 14th chapter. We are blessed tonight to have a number of gospel preachers with us. And I appreciate all of you who have spent your life preaching the gospel. Jim Boyd's with us. Jim preached in Tupelo for a while. And uh, that's where I am. And there there are some good, good folks in Tupelo, Mississippi. I've, I've preached lessons before. And I think that you would agree with this. And Dad, I think you would. Tony, I think you would too. And at the time, the lesson I preached sounded like a really good idea. And a little bit of study helped me to realize it wasn't nearly as good as I thought it was when I preached it. I think we all have moments like that. There have been a number of passages that have been misused. One of those, and this is not a grievous error, but one of those that I think is somehow and sometimes misused, is the context of Matthew chapter 14. Now, you remember, in Matthew chapter 14, some very significant events have transpired. Jesus learns of the death of John the baptizer. And it's about that same time that a large multitude is following him as he's preaching in and around the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus performs a miracle at that juncture that is recorded, importantly, in all four gospel accounts. It's the only miracle that's recorded in all four gospels, the feeding of the 5,000. It's significant. But what takes place after the feeding of the 5,000 is what captures my attention. Jesus sends his disciples on to the other side. And they got in a boat and they went away. And in the middle of the night, Jesus came walking to them on the waves. Now, here's where I think we've missed the passage many, many times. I have heard sermons, I have preached sermons where we have talked to folks and we have said, look, you need to keep your eyes on Jesus. 
Keep your eyes on Jesus. It's what you need to do. When the difficulties of life are crashing in around you, you keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your focus on Jesus. Follow Jesus. Let me tell you, it is not a mistake or an error to say keep your eyes on Jesus. We should. When life is crashing down around us, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. When our focus is off, we need to refocus on Jesus. Make no mistake about that. But the main lesson from Matthew chapter 14 isn't about merely keeping our eyes on Jesus. The main lesson of Matthew chapter 14 is a much deeper lesson about the biblical nature of faith. I want you to watch this. So, verse 23, when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost, and they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And so he said, come. And when Peter had come out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now this is where we get the train off the tracks. So Peter, verse 30, when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out saying, Lord, save me. And we, we draw our lesson to its climax, and we say, you see, folks, you keep your eyes on Jesus and you won't sink. You keep your focus on Jesus and you won't falter. I think we stopped a verse too short. The point that Jesus is making is in verse 31. The text continues and it says, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said, oh, you of little focus. Is that what he says? He doesn't say, oh, you of little focus. He says, oh, you of little faith. Now, why is that significant within this passage? I want you to remember how we defined faith a moment ago. We said faith is God speaking, man hearing, man doing. Noah built the ark because God told him to. Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah because God told him to. The walls of Jericho fell down because Joshua and the Israelites did what God told them to because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So how is faith seen in the actions of Peter and how is a lack of faith seen in the actions of Peter? To answer that, you've got to go back to Peter's profession. You remember what he was? What did Peter do? He's a fisherman. Now, I would suppose that some of you would like to think yourselves to be fishermen. Some of you may be, I don't know. But if a fisherman knows anything, a fisherman knows this. A fisherman knows that you can't walk on water. Don't you? How many times do you suppose that Peter got his feet wet dragging one of those boats up out of the Sea of Galilee? If he knew anything at all from his experiences, that's important, his experiences. If he knew anything at all from his experiences, he knows fishermen don't walk on water because no one walks on water. His substance and his evidence had taught him that man does not walk on water. And yet, he sees Jesus, and what's Jesus doing? He's walking on water. Now what happens? 
Well, Peter asked, Lord, if it's you, if this really is you, command me to come to you on the water. And so he said, come. You know what we have? We have an example of our Lord speaking, of man hearing, and of man doing. You know what Peter did? Peter exhibited biblical faith. Jesus spoke, he heard, and he did. Now when our Lord speaks to Peter, he does not say, Oh, you of no faith. He doesn't say that, does he? Because Peter has exhibited some faith. He says, Oh, you of little faith. What is it that got in his way? Look again at our passage. Verse 30 is intentional. When he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. Peter allowed his understanding of the physical world to get between him and Jesus. He allowed what he knew intellectually as a man, as a fisherman. We can't really walk on water after all. To cause him to begin to doubt. Biblical faith is a response to God. God speaks, man hears, man does. I don't know of a better passage in Scripture to show us what biblical faith looks like, at least when it works, and what it also looks like when it doesn't work. Jesus rebukes Peter, not for his lack of focus, but for his lack of faith. So we have our definition. Biblical faith is God speaking, man hearing, man doing. Just like Noah building the ark, just like Abraham offering Isaac as a sacrifice, just like Joshua leading the children of Israel around the walls of Jericho. God spoke, they heard, they did. And we've seen Peter. Jesus speaks, Peter hears, he gets out of the boat to walk toward our Lord on the water, but he sees that the wind is boisterous. He starts to think about how this is something I can't. And he sinks. It's important for us, vital for us to realize that faith is not just defined and displayed in Scripture. It is also demanded. God wants you not to merely say, well, you know, perhaps this whole thing about Jesus is worth considering. Perhaps we ought to think about it. Perhaps we ought to give some thought to the subject. God wants you to have biblical faith. As a matter of fact, He requires it. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. So faith is defined, faith is displayed, and faith is demanded. Let me show you another passage where I think that's the case. Look at John chapter 20 in your Bibles. 
20th chapter of John is a passage of celebration. As the 19th chapter ends, Jesus has died and he is in the grave. As the 20th chapter begins, he has defeated death. When you get to the end of chapter 20 of the book of John, you find a very interesting story particularly revolving around one of the apostles of Jesus, a man by the name of Thomas. You know Thomas as Doubting Thomas, and you know him as Doubting Thomas because of what happens in John, the 20th chapter. For whatever reason, on the same day of the resurrection, Thomas was not with the other apostles when Jesus presented himself alive to them. And so some time goes by, and you come to John chapter 20, and they have told Thomas over and over again, the Lord truly has risen. And Thomas said, I will not believe it unless I see it with my own eyes, unless I feel him with my own hands. I've got to have proof. Now that's the same sort of thing that drives individuals in our world today. It's the same sort of thing that caused Peter to begin to sink. He was thinking more of the wind and the waves than he was of simply responding to the Word of God. So what happens? Well, John chapter 20, beginning in verse 24. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. And the other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord! And so he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. And then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. It's always been interesting to me. I hope you notice this. The passage doesn't tell us whether Thomas actually touched Jesus or not. It doesn't say that. We assume we can see him in our mind placing his hands in the print of the nails just as he said he wanted to do. But the text doesn't tell us whether he did that or not. The text does, however, tell us he responds, My Lord and my God. And watch what Jesus said. And this is the important application for us. He said, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Do you know who he's talking about there? He's talking about us. We don't have the opportunity that Thomas had to see the risen Lord physically, even if we wanted to. We don't have the opportunity to take our hands and put them in the print of the nails or to place them upon his side and to see he truly was indeed resurrected. He truly defeated death. But we do have the capacity to believe the testimony of faithful witnesses who can say to us, our Lord is risen. Individuals who accurately communicate the will of the Holy Spirit to us in Scripture. God speaks, man hears, man does. And all of this is taken by us on the basis of faith. Not because it is substance, not because it's evidence, but because it's the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. 
our need is to trust our Lord enough to submit our lives to his plan. And so the hallmark of the church that I want to impress upon you tonight is the simple need for us to be people of faith. What does that mean? It means that we're willing to do whatever God says to do. Not because it necessarily makes sense to us physically, but because God said it. When God told Noah, you build the ark so that you and your household can be saved, I wish I could know the thoughts that ran through Noah's mind. What do you mean you're going to destroy the world? What do you mean an ark? What do you mean rain? That's not what scripture tells us about Noah. It tells us that God spoke and man heard and man did. When God told Abraham, you take Isaac, your son, and you offer him as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah, Abraham did not argue with God and say, but God, don't you remember I waited 25 years for him to be born? Don't you remember he's the son of promise? Don't you know, God, that it's through him that all the families of the earth are going to be blessed? Don't you know that because of him, my seed is going to be far and wide like the stars in the sky? God, don't you remember the promises you made? Abraham instead heard God speak and he did it. Us. When Jesus says, He who believes and is baptized shall be saved, he who does not believe will be condemned. How do we respond to that? Do we say, Well, you know, I mean, what good really can being dunked in water actually do for someone. I just don't see any reasonable explanation that the water has to the association of the removal of my spiritual sins. It makes no sense whatsoever. Friend, if that's the argument that you're making in your own mind, here's what you're doing. You're sinking. Just like Peter was sinking. Our task is not to question the God who speaks to us. It is not our task to say to God, God, I don't think you have really that in mind for me. After all, we live in a different world today. We should be able to do different things. Our task is to submit our lives to the will of God. Not to turn from God, not to argue with God, not to say to God it doesn't make sense. And sometimes people do that. When I study the Bible with individuals, I will have folks who will tell me, it really does make sense to me that I ought to have to hear God's Word. And I'll have folks who will say, I don't argue with you when you tell me that I need to believe. That makes sense. And I've had folks say to me, I can see why I need to repent of my sins, why I can't keep living for the world. And I've had folks say to me, it makes sense to me that I ought to be willing to tell others that I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But I've had those same folks who have said, it makes sense to hear and believe and repent and confess, who have then turned around and said, but I just don't think baptism makes any sense. And friends, you want to know what my response to that is? It's very simple. It makes sense because God commanded it. 
Biblical faith is taking God at his word. One more passage. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Watch what Paul says in Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27. He writes, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Powerful statement, isn't it? You want to be a son or a daughter of God? How do you get there? Through faith in Christ Jesus. But what does that mean? Watch what Paul goes on to say in verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You become a child of God by responding submissively to what God says. God speaks, man hears, man does. If there is a hallmark that should define who we are as God's people, it must be that we are submissive to his plan. I'd like to ask you tonight whether you've done that. The Bible does teach us what we need to do to be saved. It teaches us that we can have our sins washed away in the blood that Jesus shed upon the cross. And it teaches us, Galatians 3 and verse 27, that we contact that blood when we're baptized into Christ. It might be the case that you're here tonight you've never done that. It might be the case that you have other questions about that that you'd like to talk about after the service. We're glad to do that. And it might be the case that you're here and you know you have obeyed God, but you haven't lived faithfully like his child. You can make your life right in God's sight. It is a joy and a blessing for us to be called children of God. If you need to respond to our Lord's invitation, friend, don't delay. Come right now as together we stand and sing.